With the ATM fund, you're not participating in any of the upside. So what happens is the ATM fund operator, they'll use your money to hopefully purchase ATM machines. And then after they, they put them in place, they calculate given the, the demographics and given the, the statistics and data, they calculate, you know, these ATM machines will earn X amount. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Dennis Shapiro from SIH Capital Group. Dennis is the author of The Alternative Investment Almanac, expert insights on building personal wealth in non-traditional ways. And today, we're talking about a few different things in the realm of traditional versus alternative investments. We define traditional and alternative investments, at least in this context. We talk about ATM fund investing and where some of the potential risks and pitfalls are in that strategy and really where the upside is, how that works, because we haven't talked about ATM fund investing on the show before. And Dennis is a friend of mine. He's taught me about ATM fund investing, giving me some insights on that. And, and really, I asked him to share some of that with us today and share some of that with you if you're interested in that cash flow play that's gaining popularity in this space today, where the upside is, where some of the risks are. You're going to learn all of that. We also talk about how he thinks about, at least in his own personal life, about balancing traditional and alternative investments in terms of priorities, automating investments, really where uh, where he sees different upsides and, and advantages and risks and, and what they can offer, each offer in the both short and long term. And if you're not sure what all that means, don't worry, we're going to get into that today. There's so much to be learned here. I think there are a lot of opportunities for busy professionals who want to escape the Wall Street casino and get into Main Street type of investments. Uh, if you're interested in that, definitely reach out to him and go to sihcapitalgroup.com. You can get on his list, learn more about the book. I'm in the book. I contributed to the book. And uh, there's a lot to be learned here from his content. We don't talk about all of the alternative investments that he details in the book today. There's just, there's too many. There's too much knowledge to be learned. And I think getting a copy, if you're somebody who wants to escape that Wall Street casino and get into real asset investments, that is, this book is a great place to start. And I would uh, certainly recommend picking up a copy. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I'm really passionate about this topic of, like I said, escaping the Wall Street casino and getting into real asset investments that actually exist, actually produce cash flow, and uh, get to leverage the expertise of experienced investors. If you're new to the show, take a quick second, go to your favorite podcast app, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit that, hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you do enjoy the show and you're an Apple podcast user, I ask that you please take a quick second, go to the Apple podcast app, leave us a rating and review. Five stars, if you don't mind, would be much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast algorithm. And I won't lie, it helps me feel great. I like to see that you guys are out there engaging with the content, learning and growing alongside us and really benefiting from what we're putting out here, what we're talking about. So appreciate that very much. And without any further ado, here we go with Dennis Shapiro from SIH Capital Group. Dennis, thank you for joining us today. 
Hey, Taylor, thanks for having me. Awesome to be here. It's great to sit down with you and, and talk about what you're up to. For our listeners out there, could you introduce introduce us to yourself? Tell us about your background and what you're up to now. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Dennis Shapiro. I'm the author of the Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. And I am the founder of SIH Capital Group, which is an which offers an alternative investment income fund geared towards investors looking for additional income while reducing the volatility in their portfolio. I've been investing in traditional assets for the last 20 years or so, and I've been investing in alternative assets for the last nine to 10 years. So I've come up with a few different conclusions during that time period. And my main one is that both alternative and traditional assets can play key roles in today's modern portfolio. Nice. And I think it would be very good to define some terms here, right? Alternative versus traditional. I think anybody in investing, we're really going to have different conceptions and different different concepts of what alternative versus traditional really means. So in your you know terminology, what do you consider alternative and traditional investments? That's a great point. So traditional for me is stocks and bonds, anything that's traded on Wall Street. Now, alternative investments, that's anything actually not traded on Wall Street. So that's a much wider range of assets. Uh, but I also think there's many different tiers of alternative assets. Some of the stuff that I get offered, I I kind of click on spam and, and move on. <laughs> you know, the high quality alternative assets for me, like the ones that I talk about in my book are more real state based. Uh, so there are different real estate sections like mobile home parks, self storages. Uh, I'm a big fan of life insurance funds just because of the quality of the uh, institution that's paying it out. And then ATM funds kind of round it out. And that's where I really try to stick to my, my core competencies in evaluating those deals because so many of the similarities, like, so if you learn and you, you network in apartment buildings, it's really easy to transition over to mobile home parks and self-storage, uh, especially from a passive investor side. Uh, once you learn the ter terminology of a few keywords and uh, more importantly, not the terminology, but the context of the terminology, like when you can honestly say you understand what conservative underwriting actually <laughs> actually really means, right. then you know it's a very easy transition to other assets that are kind of similar. So I wouldn't go with, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about apartment buildings and then it's like, hey, let me talk about cryptocurrency. Uh, a lot of people are marrying a lot of these different alternative assets. I tried to stick to a few uh, core ones. Nice. And I think that term in particular, you know, conservative underwriting, what that really means is is important because everybody says they underwrite conservatively, right? And, and passive investors and sponsors alike need to know what conservative underwriting actually is so that we can really get in and, and evaluate whether we agree that the underwriting uh, is conservative or not. And, and here we're all about helping folks escape Wall Street and invest in Main Street. You're really talking about a blend of the two, but I think the more that everybody gets into real estate and real assets, uh, so much the better. Really, really love that. And one thing we haven't addressed on the show in the past, at least to my knowledge, my what I remember is ATM funds. And and you know to break the fourth wall a little bit, you know, you and I are friends. We've known each other for a while. You've taught me a lot about ATM funds and where some of the pitfalls are, what some of the advantages are. And I think our listeners today would really benefit from 
learning some of your knowledge and insight and what you've learned in the ATM fund space and what makes it so interesting. So let's break into that. Tell us how those work and then we'll break into uh, some of the risks, pitfalls, and you know where you could maybe go wrong in that space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, so I dedicated a whole chapter to ATM funds uh, because there are so many misconceptions out there on the topic. Uh, it also has a terrible reputation because it's like I, there's a SEC list that comes out of the most likely like Ponzi scheme assets and ATM <laughs> fund because of the amount of uh, cash that flows in and out. It's typically one of the top categories where a Ponzi scheme might occur. So it's it's one of those assets where I love the fundamentals of it. I love everything about it, but it's the one that I'm like, this is the one I have to be most careful with. Uh, so there's a few different, like just to... Oh, rewind it. An ATM machine is just really simple. It's uh, you know, it's basically a, a, an automated teller machine that that uh, a person can come in. They can use its services, uh, and they usually pay some kind of fee. Sometimes it's um, the the fee is covered by the bank, the credit union. Uh, but a lot of times, the main function of these the ATM business model is to provide banking services to what's called the underbanked population where there's a where there's a large chunk of uh, I, I don't know the stat off my head but uh, it's in my book but i think it was something like 18 20% of the population uh uses it and they they use it because they can't go and they can't get regular banking services either they don't have a social security number or whatever the reason is or they've had uh you know problems with the banks where they're dealing with credit freezes but the 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 point is they they provide Tremendous services in the like the low income areas, and in exchange for the fee, uh, they get the the services basically. So that's basically the business model. But there's two different ways to invest in it. You could buy the individual ATMs, or you could invest in the fund. Uh, I'm I'm much more geared. I'm, I I call myself an active passive investor. Uh, so I am not you know going out and buying ATM machines myself. I believe in investing in like an institutional quality fund that actually goes out there. They have the contracts in places. The, the contracts are really important in the industry uh, because during COVID, the difference between uh, having the right contracts or not was major business model work or not. You know, so the concept of essential businesses really came to light after COVID, where you know the ATMs that were in the Walgreens and the, and the supermarkets and alongside the turnpikes. Those did really well. The ATMs that were like in your little mom and pop uh, convenience stores, and they did not do as well. So it's important when you're investing to decide whether or not you're going to do the actual ATM machines themselves or you're going to invest in a fund. Uh, I prefer the fund model. That's kind of uh, what I talk about in the book. Okay. Okay. So one of the things I really note there is that this is a business that even the SEC says is highly likely to be, you know, a scam, a Ponzi scheme or to go wrong. And how do you, as an investor, protect yourself and your investors from, you know, those risks of, you know, partnering somebody or partnering with somebody that is, you know, going to run it as a Ponzi scheme or how do you really look out for that and keep that from happening? Make sure you're investing in the legitimate side of that business. Yeah, so this is where networking comes in hand. This has kind of been my specialty. When I was looking at my income fund and I was deliberating whether or not to put the ATM fund in, the ATM fund 
basically allowed me to pay a much higher uh, income out than if I didn't include it. And especially uh, with a newer fund, I wanted to have that higher yield from day one. So for me, I wanted to make sure, like, how do I include this and avo- and mitigate the risks? And one of them, one of them is that I didn't just pick one ATM fund. I went out and I searched my entire network. I went through some of the better known names in my network who do due diligence on ATM funds and I picked their brain. So even though myself, I've only invested in ATM funds for, for a year now, I still went towards, I went to someone who's done multiple cycles with ATM funds, who went and has multiple uh, exits with the same fund operator. So that's what I went to. So the first thing I would say is the best way to protect is to actually network with other investors that have gone full cycle with those type of deals. So and that, that applies to any deals that I guess you would label as higher risk. Uh, so anytime you you want to spend that extra time doing the due diligence, but it doesn't mean that the deal is not worth looking at, which I think is important. Just because um, I don't even want to say might be a Ponzi scheme because that that's all dependent on the operator. Mm-hmm. But just because the likelihood is increased doesn't mean the whole asset class should be completely discounted. So while I was networking, the the person that I, I don't want to mention his name, but he has an incredible reputation and you know of him because when I spoke to you about the ATM funds, like when I mentioned his name, you were like, that's enough said. But we yeah. went over in my book, uh, he helped me craft a due diligence checklist. And a couple of things are super logical, but so many investors skip the step is to actually make sure the location, the, uh, the ATM machines are actually there. So oh, okay. one Ponzi mm-hmm. scheme that I researched was uh, back in the late 2000s, they alleged having 4,000 ATM machines. And in reality, they had like 400. So if you think <laughs> about it, they had a tenth of a percent of what they actually alleged. So if you would have spot checked a couple of the machines, and I know that's extent- time extensive, especially if you're going to you know, um, invest with someone in California and you're out in New York. But if, you're, if the minimum investment is $50,000, $52,000 for these deals, you know, it might be worth the plane ride to actually go in and you should be able to get a list of where the ATM machines they're saying actually are and you go to them. So, for example, that Ponzi scheme that I mentioned that only had 10% of their uh, ATM machines that they were kind of marketing, if you would have picked one location and went there, you know, what is the chances of you, you know, finding that ATM machine and working order? Now, imagine it was at 10%, right? And now imagine you had, um, you went and looked for two locations. Right away, the Ponzi scheme would have been busted unless you had mm. some terrible luck. Um, <laughs> so that was one of the first steps. And that's like the most logical step that I think at minimal everybody should do if they're investing. It's like almost like investing in an apartment building and not Googling to make sure there is a physical apartment building at that spot. You know, I think that's like equivalent to that. Uh, Some of the other steps mentioned in the book would be to actually to go and they're not going to do this on a minimum investment, but on a higher scale investment, they'll actually let you log into the terminals and actually see like live transactions going in and out of ATMs. Probably if you're a minimum investor, you're not going to get that level of services. But if you network with someone who isn't a minimum investor, 
level investor and has a relationship with the operator, then you might be able to get that access. So there's a lot of common sense things you could do. And there's also a much more higher level. Um, the other common sense ones to do background checks, like the uh, the person who participated in my book, he mentioned one scenario where he did a, ba- a background check and the person was convicted of credit card terminal fraud. So basically, you know, when you go and swipe, mm-hmm. there was there was some some ill doings. So sure enough, this guy who was already convicted of one kind of fraud, you know, he went on and opened up an ATM fund and you could kind of guess what happened. So, you know, stuff like that, you know, criminal uh, criminal background checks, actually checking physical locations. Those are the basics. I get into more high level actual due diligence in the actual uh, book. Nice. That's, that's really interesting. And, you know, it's, it might be, once you know about it, it might seem it's common sense, right? Well, why not just go look and see if there's an ATM there and you, but you might not think that initially I'll just, I'm just going to go check and see if there's an ATM there. But once you hear it, it's like, oh yeah. Like if that's one of the types of fraud that can happen in this space, then go check it out. It's it's like with an apartment, look it up on Google maps and make sure it's there, you know, or if you have somebody know somebody in the market that could drive by and take some pictures for you or secret shop or whatever. Those are a few things that you can do in the apartment space. Now, as, as say physical real estate investors, when we're buying a building, like an apartment complex or self-storage or, or whatever, our exit strategy is really kind of everything. And I, it's 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 not everything, but that's where we're going to make most of our money in a value add deal. We're going to buy it, fix it up, sell it for more in you know three, five, seven years, whatever the business plan is, and that's where we're going to make most of our money. There's cash flow along the way, of course, but we want that paycheck at the end. Whereas with ATM investments, how does that exit strategy work? Do you have ATMs left over at the end that you're going to sell to somebody for a higher value? Or where are you really making the return on an ATM investment? Is that the end? Cash flow? How's that all shake out? That that's a great point. This is where it's the most different asset to uh, you know if you're an apartment building investor and you hear about ATM funds and you come in and you look at the performer, it is a completely different it's a completely different analysis. So with the ATM fund, you're not participating in any of the upside. So what happens is the ATM fund operator they'll use your money to hopefully purchase ATM machines, and then after they they put them in place, they calculate. Given the the demographics and given the the statistics and data, they calculate you know these ATM machines will earn X amount. Now they'll give you a consistent cut below that because they they need to make money as well for seven straight years. Now the reason why it's seven years is because usually the technology of ATM depreciates at that rate. So in seven years, that ATM that was brand new on day one is like a dinosaur in year seven. So what ends up happening is like when you get an apartment building, usually, you know, in seven years, the apartment building hopefully is worth a lot more. This is one of those asset classes that are rare because you're actually buying into it knowing that you are going to actually get zero at the end. But what makes the investment worth it is that higher yield from day one to year seven. So you get a really nice contractual rate of return. And usually somewhere between like year three and four, you you break even. And then four to seven is pure profit. It's the exact same return every single month uh, for seven years. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a bond in a way. Um, really big cash flow play. Are there, is there like a 
depreciation uh, paper loss type of thing that's passed on to investors could like a, with apartment buildings or that, how does that work in this case? Yeah, exactly the same way. And the depreciation is is huge because the technology is becoming obsolete. So because the technology is becoming obsolete, every year it's basically a seventh of the value you get cut off. Now, I know uh, some operators have done more significant uh, depreciation. I forget if, 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 if the term is cost segregation in ATM machine in, in ATM world, uh, but it's it's similar where you could get higher depreciation from day one. Uh, but it, it works almost exactly the same as an apartment building. Hmm, okay. And how about leverage? I mean, we get pretty cheap debt to buy apartments or whatever. Is this a full cash play? Are they getting loans? How's that all work? So I... I am not 100% sure if this is across the board of the industry, uh, but I believe the fund that I operated in do, uh, does not use any debt. So they raise, that's why their raises are a little different. So usually in alternative uh, syndications, you'll see like a $50,000 minimum or something like that. Uh, like the fund I did was a $52,000 minimum. So that amount specifically, I think it breaks down to like something like $13,000 ATM machine. So it's a specific uh, tranche where you're buying into, I think it comes out to like four ATM machines or something like that. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Now, one of these ideas that I, I'd like to get into, at least while we're here, while we've got some time is you talk about the, this is a bit of a shift from what we were talking about before, but you talk about the balance between traditional and alternative investments and you know the way you think folks should should look at that in terms of their own portfolio and allocating their investments. Can you tell us about why you, know, you think a mix of the two is right and you know, how folks can work on determining what the right mix is for them of traditional and alternative investments? Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. This is actually the whole purpose of my fund. My fund came about because I've been investing for traditional uh, stocks and bonds f- since I was 14 years old. I literally tried every single strategy. I kind of landed on index funds. I was kind of early fire movement guy. Uh, so I came around to index funds. And then I was approaching early retirement. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do after I stop working? You know, And at the same time, I'm still really relatively young and not as young as I used to be, but still relatively young. And I want to build my assets. So the typical advice in the fire community, right, is the 4% rule, the golden rule. And if an index fund pays one to 2%, then you have to sell 2% of your assets then every single year. So you could get that 4% so you could live on and then you make your adjustments. And that has always sat really bad with me. I couldn't be like, all right, I'm going to leave my job and then I'm going to start selling my assets because I have three kids. <laughs> I have three kids. Like the purpose of me, you know, working, you know, those 80 hour work weeks was it wasn't just so I could deplete all my savings and then end at zero or whatever it is. I wanted to leave them. I wanted to leave a legacy. So I started saying, okay, so if index funds give you one to 2%, how can I supplement that? Let me try bond funds. Let me try high yield bond funds. Let me try uh, REITs. Let me try utilities. If Honestly, if you name a strategy, I probably tried it and it failed to do what it actually was <laughs> supposed to do. Uh, so I realized that just looking at traditional assets, I loved so many things about it. I love the fact that I could autopilot my index fund and only spend, spend 1% of my brain power. As long as I don't sell in a downturn, it was on autopilot. Now, I was looking at my alternative investment portfolio, and I was treating them as two different portfolios. And I was looking at my alternative investment portfolio. I'm like, wow, this thing is much higher yield. 
and it's night and day on the volatility. None of uh, everything is private in there, so nothing is traded. Like for example, uh, during March 2020, I owned REITs in my traditional portfolio, and then I owned private real estate in my alternative investment portfolio. And what happened in March 2020, I think, said it all. My REITs were down 34 percent based owning some of the same assets that my private real estate owns, but the private real estate wasn't trading hands. So there, it, it didn't go down. So I had zero losses on one hand, and then I had negative 34% losses on the other hand. So what I realized was I needed to keep the traditional, uh, traditional side of my portfolio doing what it does best. And that's to keep it on autopilot and let that appreciate. But I wanted to have a portfolio that I could say, okay, it's going to appreciate enough for me, but it's also going to provide the income I need. So I actually came up with the concept of instead of looking at them as two different portfolios, I going forward, I started looking at them as one portfolio. I, I, I look at it as a pie chart. I cut the pie right in the middle. This is not financial advice. You should always talk to a financial professional. But personally, I found that this works really well. I, I use the left side as my traditional low-cost index fund. And then on my right side, I try to slice it up to with as many uh, of these alternative investments as I can, uh, which gives me my diversification. And I realized while I was talking to other investors that they didn't know how to approach alternative investments. It was like this boogeyman uh, topic. Uh, and what I realized is I had like, hey, I've been doing this side for nine years, this side for 20 years. Let me make the perfect compliment and say, I'm not going to replace your whole portfolio. But if you want a nice, simple, easy option to incorporate alternative investments to create that additional yield like I did while lowering, lowering your overall portfolios, then you know, then you can look at something like my alternative investment income fund. Nice, nice. And, you know, we've, we've talked kind of one on one in the past about some of the shortcomings, uh, with the fire movement. And it's a great point that you made about, uh, the REITs diving in value, whereas the private real estate didn't, there's no change in value. If anything, it, it only went up because the REITs are changing hands, trading hands. But for your private real estate, there are still tenants in there, still paying rent, still using the properties, um, despite you know all the eviction moratoriums and everything. And um, you know, I, I like that. I think I agree that Wall Street type investments, the traditional investments, have a huge advantage in how easy they are to automate, particularly with low-cost index funds that are out there. And for all my talk of you know escaping Wall Street to invest in Main Street. You know, the, the fire movement is, I think, onto something when they point people towards automating their investments and, and taking, again, like you said, some of that brain power out of it and, you know, using your brain power for something else, 1% to your investments, set it and forget it and don't <laughs> panic sell in the downturn. Those are all well proven strategies, but they're hard to do for a lot of folks and they don't you know, produce that consistent cash flow that as you call it, alternative investments do. So I think you can make a great, you make a great case for a mix of the two and call out a, a, an excellent advantage uh, to be honest about it that the traditional you know, Wall Street type of investments can really offer, you know, low, low brain power, set it and forget it type of things. I love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Dennis, you know this. You've listened to the show. I've got three questions. I ask every guest, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? 
So this one, I would definitely, you know, I the given answer I think I hear most often in your show is your spouse. And mm-hmm. I definitely mm-hmm. would be remiss of not saying my spouse, but I wanted to give an original answer. So I kind of wanted, in case my wife hears this, it's it's my it's my spouse. <laughs> right. But then if we put it on pause, you know, the financial best investment I think I ever made was I had a low-income rental and I had to participate in an eviction. And after I took over the property, the whole place was completely wrecked. Uh, So I completely gutted it. I completely did a full renovation. I was going back and forth. I was doing this property maybe, you know, seven days a week type of situation for like a month, a month and a half. Finally had it to the point where I could show it. And I remember driving on my last day and hearing up uh, bigger pockets podcast and they were talking about how you should never leave a rental property vacant and if you leave it vacant you should at the minimum put a security system and i it, it's something like i heard and i was like i have to do this i don't know why i just have to do this a i have a vacant property b i just spent a lot of money fixing it up i was like let me do this i literally came home that day i overnighted it i went and i installed it and i was so excited i'm gonna show the property I think I closed up shop like Friday, you know, six o'clock. I looked around the place. It looked great. I was was excited. And I had showings the whole weekend. So I locked up the door and like Saturday morning came. And this was like two, three hours before a showing. I get a phone call from the security system and they're like, your alarm is going off. I'm like, what? I'm like, I almost think it's like a joke. It's like, maybe it's like a test. You know, it's been only 24 hours. Uh, I, I was like, you know, I had to think, I'm like, did I, any general contractor is supposed to go there for anything. Maybe they forgot something. I was like, you know, I don't want to take any chances. Please send someone out. So sure enough, you know, they said, Hey, there's a break in. And I was like, okay, I'll be right there. So I got in my car. I drove the hour or whatever it is. I get there no one's there. It's like a ghost town. No, no police officer, nothing. So I called the the alarm company. They send the police officer back. Uh, I'll never forget. His name was uh, James Bond. (laughs) <laughs> which was like ironic. He was actually my age. I'll never ever forget that. And we went through the whole house, went room by room. When we got upstairs, we found a duffel bag. There was a guy with a security outfit. He, I guess, he was planning to impersonate a security guard. He couldn't get. He couldn't uh, figure out the alarm. Uh, he, it, it, there's like this little. Um, little piece that makes the the siren, the siren, which makes a lot of noise. So I think he tried to hammer it. It didn't work. I think he put it in a, uh, in a bucket of water, submerged it. It didn't work. Um, so then he just like ran away. So the cop who's a young, who's a young kid like me, he was walking through the place and he's like, wow, your renovation actually came really, really nice. And he's like, I'm actually looking for a new place. And then he turned out to actually put a lease uh, application, he a rental application in for the property. But I just did the like the from a numbers perspective, uh, you know, that alarm probably cost me three hundred dollars because I paid for it up front, and then I, this way you could stop it every every uh, now and then. And, you know, considering the amount of copper piping I had and just the fact that I just did a huge (laughs) renovation and it would have set me back on getting a new tenant, uh, everything I would probably say, you know, $300 investment netted me like a $10,000 return in one day. 
if you consider that thing, if you try to do the, uh, the uh, you know, the return, if you like an apartment building investor knows the term IRR, that IRR is going to be pretty close to infinite because <laughs> <laughs> I would have all my money back to 300. And then technically I made like $9,700, whatever it is. Uh, so that was, uh, that was definitely my best investment. And I, I like to say that story because only like a real estate investor, I think will wake up to a felony and then we'll uh, leave that day with like a potential great tenant. <laughs> nice. And that, that the time value of money was uh, really, you know, at play in that situation. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? You know, I'll, I'll be consistent. It was the same property, the low-income housing. I, I bought it uh, when I just didn't know. Uh, like I, I try to educate investors on educating yourself. And I just didn't know what I didn't know. I, I bought it in a bad area, low low income. I, I bought it from a family member. I didn't do my homework. I didn't do market analysis. I did nothing. It was like, it was maybe the worst. Uh, I would be ashamed at talking to myself back then. And I held on to this thing for like 10 years. I had decent cash flow, but 10 years later, I think I took like a 20% loss on it during a time period where from 2012 till, uh, you know, 2020 was I could have probably just thrown money in the air and made a better return at that point, as long as I caught the money on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that the opportunity cost of, of money is very important and, and making uh, what in hindsight turns out to be the wrong decision or an underinformed decision um, can be costly when you consider um, opportunity cost. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, networking. I'll, I'll probably, I, I think it's like a sword I'll either live or die on. Uh, you know, sometimes I may be a little too, too trustworthy on my network, but I actually, if I had to pick a skill that allowed me to accelerate my investment career in the last two, three years, it has been networking ever since I went to my first real estate conference. And, you know, I networked with six individuals, you including, and those six have introduced me to plenty of people. And uh, I would probably say my network is you know almost 100 150 people at this point where i can constantly have a phone call figure out what's going on in the market uh get introduced to opportunities that are already vetted by someone i actually trust and respect uh there's just i i i think this business especially as an investor i think you live or die on your network and that that's my final answer nice i i I would agree, you know, knowing you, I would agree that I think that is uh, a strong suit of yours and, and networking is uh, very valuable in real estate, especially. But you, you mentioned 150 people. We're not talking 150, no disrespect to anybody. We're not talking 150 people off the street. We're talking 150 high level. You know, if I know who you know and the few people that I know who you know that you talk to, it's high-end people. It's it's people with a lot of experience, sometimes managing significant amounts of investor capital and with with just huge backgrounds. And uh, you know, I do think um, you know, being friends with you, I, I think that is a a power of yours. You're very good at it. Um, and and thank you for sitting down with us today and, and teaching us about what you're doing with your fund, ATM fund investing, where some of the pitfalls are, blending traditional and alternative investments and uh, some of your lessons from investing. If folks want to reach out to you, you, you have a book that's that's coming out. And I th I'm not sure whether this goes live, whether, whether it'll be uh, out or not, but we'll assume that it is. I, I'm not certain. 
I'm in the book. I wrote a little bit for the book and you've got some, some awesome people in there and alternative investments that I didn't know about that I think could be very good opportunities for folks to get in and, and read about and learn about and, and consider dive into and learn more. If folks want to get a copy of the book, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to you know find you, get on your mailing list, whatever, where can they do all of that? Yeah, the best place is my website, www.sihcapitalgroup.com. If you just click learn more, you'll be subscribed to my mailing list. I am releasing the book very, very shortly. So it should be out by the time this goes to publication. Uh, so keep a lookout for that. That's the Alternative Investment Almanac, Experts Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. And if you sign up to my mailing list, you'll get exclusive abridged versions. And I'll also be sending chapters out to my mailing list. Awesome. So it is the book is out now then. If we're, you know, if it's coming out soon when we're recording, then the book is out. So folks should definitely go to your website and and uh get on the get the abridged version and then try to get yourself uh the full one because there's a lot of awesome info in there from from some fantastic people. And uh I was really honored to be a part of it. Thank you for that. And to and thank you for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in if you're enjoying the show please leave us a rating and view on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher in the Apple algorithm. And it helps me feel good because I get to see what you guys have to say, what you're learning, and that you're growing along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.